Section 59 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa McCleskey. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 4, Part 5. The chemists in Great Britain have never hitherto distinguished themselves much in analytical chemistry. This, I conceive, is owing to the mode of education which has been hitherto unhappily followed. Till within these very few years, practical chemistry has been nowhere taught. The consequence has been that every chemist must discover processes for himself, and a long time elapses before he acquires the requisite dexterity and skill. About the beginning of the present century, Dr. Kennedy of Edinburgh was an enthusiastic and dexterous analyst, but unfortunately he was lost to the science by a premature death after giving a very few, but these masterly, analyses to the public. About the same time, Charles Hatchett, Esquire, was an active chemist and published not a very few excellent analyses, but unfortunately this most amiable and accomplished man has been lost to science for more than a quarter of a century, the baneful effects of wealth and the cares of a lucrative and extensive business having completely weaned him from scientific pursuits. Mr. Gregor of Cornwall was an accurate man and attended only to analytical chemistry. His analyses were not numerous, but they were in general excellent. Unfortunately, the science was deprived of his services by a premature death. The same observation applies equally to Mr. Edward Howard, whose analyses of meteoric stones form an era in this branch of chemistry. He was not only a skillful chemist, but was possessed of a persevering industry which peculiarly fitted him for making a figure as a practical chemist. Of modern British analytical chemists, undoubtedly the first is Mr. Richard Phillips, to whom we are indebted for not a few analyses, conducted with great chemical skill, and performed with great accuracy. Unfortunately, of late years, he has done little, having been withdrawn from science by the necessity of providing for a large family, which can hardly be done, in this country, except by turning one's attention to trade or manufacturers. The same remark applies to Dr. Henry, who has contributed so much to our knowledge of gaseous bodies, and whose analytical skill, had it been wholly devoted to scientific investigations, would have raised his reputation as a discoverer much higher than it has attained, although the celebrity of Dr. Henry, even under the disadvantages of being a manufacturing chemist, is deservedly very high. Of the young chemists who have but recently started in the path of analytical investigation, we expect the most from Dr. Turner of the London University. His analyses of the ores of manganese are admirable specimens of skill and accuracy, and have completely elucidated a branch of mineralogy which, before his experiments and the descriptions of Heidinger appeared, was buried in impenetrable darkness. No man that Great Britain has produced was better fitted to have figured as an analytical chemist, both by his uncommon chemical skill and the powers of his mind, which were of the highest order, than Mr. Smithson Tennant, had he not been in some measure prevented by a delicate frame of body, which produced in him a state of indolence somewhat similar to that of Dr. Black. 
His discovery of osmium and iridium and his analysis of emery and magnesian limestone may be mentioned as proofs of what he could have accomplished had his health allowed him a greater degree of exertion. His experiments on the diamond first demonstrated that it was composed of pure carbon, while his discovery of phosphorus of lime has furnished lecturers on chemistry with one of the most brilliant and beautiful of those exhibitions which they are in the habit of making to attract the attention of their students. Smithson Tennant was the only child of the Reverend Calvert Tennant, youngest son of a respectable family in Wensleydale, near Richmond, in Yorkshire, and vicar of Selby in that county. He was born on the 30th of November, 1761. He had the misfortune to lose his father when he was only nine years of age, and before he attained the age of manhood, he was deprived likewise of his mother by a very unfortunate accident. She was thrown from her horse while riding with her son and killed on the spot. His education, after his father's death, was irregular and apparently neglected. He was sent successively to different schools in Yorkshire, at Scorton, Tadcaster, and Beverly. He gave many proofs while young of a particular turn for chemistry and natural philosophy, both by reading all books of that description which fell in his way, and by making various little experiments which the perusal of these books suggested. His first experiment was made at nine years of age, when he prepared a quantity of gunpowder for fireworks, according to directions contained in some scientific book to which he had access. In the choice of a profession, his attention was naturally directed towards medicine, as being more nearly allied to his philosophical pursuits. He went accordingly to Edinburgh, about the year 1781, where he laid the foundation of his chemical knowledge under Dr. Black. In 1782, he was entered a member of Christ College, Cambridge, where he began from that time to reside. He was first entered as a pensioner, but disliking the ordinary discipline and routine of an academical life, he obtained an exemption from those restraints by becoming a fellow commoner. During his residence at Cambridge, his chief attention was bestowed on chemistry and botany, though he made himself also acquainted with the elementary parts of mathematics and had mastered the most important parts of Newton's Principia. In 1784, he traveled into Denmark and Sweden, chiefly with the view of becoming personally acquainted with Scheele, for whom he had imbibed a high admiration. He was much gratified by what he saw of this extraordinary man, and was particularly struck with the simplicity of the apparatus with which his great experiments had been performed. On his return to England, he took great pleasure in showing his friends at Cambridge various mineralogical specimens, which had been presented to him by Scheele and in exhibiting several interesting experiments which he had learned from that great chemist. A year or two afterwards, he went to France to become personally acquainted with the most eminent of the French chemists. Thence he went to Holland and the Netherlands, at that time in a state of insurrection against Joseph II. In 1786, he left Christ College along with Professor Herman and removed with him to Emmanuel College. In 1788, he took his first degree as Bachelor of Physic, and soon after acquitted Cambridge and came to reside in London. In 1791, he made his celebrated analysis of carbonic acid, which fully confirmed the opinions previously stated by Lavoisier respecting the constituents of this substance. His mode was to pass phosphorus through red-hot carbonate of lime. The phosphorus was acidified and charcoal deposited, 
It was during these experiments that he discovered phosphorate of lime. In 1792, he again visited Paris, but from circumstances, being afraid of a convulsion, he was fortunate enough to leave that city the day before the memorable 10th of August. He traveled through Italy and then passed through part of Germany. On his return to Paris in the beginning of 1793, he was deeply impressed with the gloom and desolation arising from the system of terror then beginning to prevail in that capital. On calling in the house of M. Delametri, of whose simplicity and moderation he had a high opinion, he found the doors and windows closed as if the owner were absent. Being at length admitted, he found his friends sitting in a back room by candlelight with the shutters closed in the middle of the day. On his departure, after a hurried and anxious conversation, his friend conjured him not to come again, as the knowledge of his being there might be attended with serious consequences to them both. To the honor of Delametri, it deserves to be stated that through all the inquisitions of the revolution, he preserved for his friend property of considerable value, which Mr. Tennant had entrusted to his care. On his return from the continent, he took lodgings in the temple, where he continued to reside during the rest of his life. He still continued the study of medicine and attended the hospitals, but became more indifferent about entering into practice. He took, however, a doctor's degree at Cambridge in 1796, but resolved, as his fortune was independent, to relinquish all idea of practice as not likely to contribute to his happiness. Exquisite sensibility was a striking feature in his character, and it would, as he very properly conceived, have made him peculiarly unfit for the exercise of the medical profession. It may be worthwhile to relate an example of his practical benevolence which happened about this time. He had a steward in the country, in whom he had long placed implicit confidence, and who was considerably indebted to him. In consequence of this man's becoming embarrassed in his circumstances, Mr. Tennant went into the country to examine his accounts. A time and place were appointed for him to produce his books and show the extent of the deficiency, but the unfortunate steward felt himself unequal to the task of such an explanation, and in a fit of despair put an end to his existence. Touched by this melancholy event, Mr. Tennant used his utmost exertions for the relief and protection of the family whom he had left, and not only forgave them the debt, but afforded them pecuniary assistance, and continued ever afterwards to be their friend and benefactor. During the year 1796, he made his experiments to prove that the diamond is pure carbon. His method was to heat it in a gold tube with saltpeter. The diamond was converted into carbonic acid gas, which combined with the potash from the saltpeter, and by the evolution of which the quantity of carbon in a given weight of diamond might be estimated. A characteristic trait of Mr. Tennant occurred during the course of this experiment, which I relate on the authority of Dr. Wollaston, who was present as an assistant and who related the fact to me. Mr. Tennant was in the habit of taking a ride on horseback every day at a certain hour. The tube containing the diamond and saltpeter were actually heating and the experiment considerably advanced when, suddenly recollecting that his hour for riding was come, he left the completion of the process to Dr. Wollaston and went out as usual to take his ride. In the year 1797, in consequence of a visit to a friend in Lincolnshire, 
where he witnessed the activity with which improvements in farming operations were at that time going on, he was induced to purchase some land in that country in order to commence farming operations. In 1799, he bought a considerable tract of wasteland in Somersetshire, near the village of Cheddar, where he built a small house in which, during the remainder of his life, he was in the habit of spending some months every summer, besides occasional visits at other times of the year. These farming speculations, as might have been anticipated from the indolent and careless habits of Mr. Tennant, were not very successful. Yet it appears from the papers which he left behind him that he paid considerable attention to agriculture, that he had read the best books on the subject, and collected many facts on it during his different journeys through various parts of England. In the course of these inquiries, he had discovered that there were two kinds of limestone known in the Midland countries of England, one of which yielded a lime injurious to vegetation. He showed, in 1799, that the presence of carbonate of magnesia is the cause of the bad qualities of this latter kind of limestone. He found that the magnesian limestone forms an extensive stratum in the Midland counties, and that it occurs also in primitive districts under the name of dolomite. He infers from the slow solubility of this limestone in acids that it is a double salt composed of carbonate of lime and carbonate of magnesia in chemical combination. He found that grain would scarcely germinate, and that it soon perished in moistened carbonate of magnesia. Hence he concluded that magnesia is really injurious to vegetation. Upon this principle he accounted for the injurious effects of the magnesian limestone when employed as a manure. In 1802, he showed that emery is merely a variety of corundum, or of the precious stone known by the name of sapphire. During the same year, while endeavoring to make an alloy of lead with the powder which remains after treating crude platinum with aqua regia, he observed remarkable properties in this powder, and found that it contained a new metal. While he was engaged in the investigation, Decatille had turned his attention to the same powder, and had discovered that it contained a metal which gives a red color to the ammoniacal precipitate of platinum. Soon after, Vauquelin, having treated the powder with alkali, obtained a volatile metallic oxide, which he considered as the same metal that had been observed by Decatille. In 1804, Mr. Tennant showed that this powder contains two new metals, to which he gave the name of osmium and iridium. Mr. Tennant's health, by this time, had become delicate, and he seldom went to bed without a certain quantity of fever, which often obliged him to get up during the night and expose himself to the cold air. To keep himself in any degree in health, he found it necessary to take a great deal of exercise on horseback. He was always an awkward and a bad horseman, so that these rides were sometimes a little hazardous and I have more than once heard him say that a fall from his horse would some day prove fatal to him. In 1809, he was thrown from his horse near Brighton and had his collarbone broken. In the year 1812, he was prevailed upon to deliver a few lectures on the principles of mineralogy to a number of his friends, among whom were many ladies and a considerable number of men of science and information. These lectures were completely successful and raised his reputation very much among his friends as a lecturer. He particularly excelled in the investigation of minerals by the blowpipe. 
and I have heard him repeatedly say that he was indebted for the first knowledge of the mode of using that valuable instrument to Assessor Gagné Fallon. In 1813, a vacancy occurring in the chemical professorship at Cambridge, he was solicited to become a candidate. His friends exerted themselves in his favor with unexampled energy, and all opposition being withdrawn, he was elected professor in May 1813. After the general pacification in 1814, he went to France and repaired to the southern provinces of that kingdom. He visited Lyon, Nîmes, Avignon, Marseille, and Montpellier. He returned to Paris in November, much gratified by his southern tour. He was to have returned to England about the latter end of the year, but he continued to linger on till the February following. On the 15th of that month, he went to Calais, but the wind blew directly into Calais Harbor and continued unfavorable for several days. After waiting till the 20th, he went to Bologna in order to take the chance of a better passage from that port. He embarked on board a vessel on the 22nd, but the wind was still adverse and blew so violently that the vessel was obliged to put back. When Mr. Tennant came ashore, he said that it was in vain to struggle with the elements and that he was not yet tired of life. It was determined, in case the wind should abate, to make another trial in the evening. During the interval, Mr. Tennant proposed to his fellow traveler, Baron Bulow, that they should hire horses and take a ride. They rode at first along the seaside, but on Mr. Tennant's suggestion, they went afterwards to Bonaparte's Pillar, which stands on an eminence about a league from the seashore, and which, having been to see it the day before, he was desirous of showing to Baron Bulow. On their return from thence, they deviated a little from the road, in order to look at a small fort near the pillar, the entrance to which was over a fosse twenty feet deep. On the side toward them, there was a standing bridge for some way, till it joined a drawbridge, which turned on a pivot. The end next the fort rested on the ground. On the side next to them, it was usually fastened by a bolt, but the bolt had been stolen about a fortnight before and was not replaced. As the bridge was too narrow for them to go abreast, the baron said he would go first and attempted to ride over it, but perceiving that it was beginning to sink, he made an effort to pass the center and called out to warn his companion of his danger. But it was too late. They were both precipitated into the trench. The baron, though much stunned, fortunately escaped without any serious hurt. But on recovering his senses and looking round for Mr. Tennant, he found him lying under his horse nearly lifeless. He was taken, however, to the civil hospital as the nearest place ready to receive him. After a short interval, he seemed in some slight degree to recover his senses and made an effort to speak, but without effect, and died within the hour. His remains were interred a few days after in the public cemetery at Bologna, being attended to the grave by most of the English residents. End of section 59